And welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast, where we talk about how medieval and medieval-inspired movies, TV, and books depict the medieval world. What did they get right? What did they get wrong? And what do they tell us about how modern people see the medieval past? I'm Sarah F. Decker, a medieval historian, and today I'll be talking about Life of Brian for a special Easter Passover episode with a special guest, my father, Richard Ift. Hi, Dad. Hi, Sarah. How are you today? In uh... Good. In coronavirus land, so it's good we're doing this remotely. But uh, yep. So, do you want to tell the listeners a little bit about who you are, in addition to being my father? Uh, <laughs> sure. Well, as you know, I'm a lawyer, practiced law for 30 years, but uh, which apparently is what convinced you to become a medievalist, uh, having <laughs> what practicing law was like. Uh, even though you would have been a very good lawyer, but I now work for the government. But since since I was very young, long before when you got became uh, interested in the medieval world, I always had a huge fascination with uh, Rome and the Roman world, which has uh, made Life of Brian has always been a big draw for me. And you're also the person who introduced me to Monty Python. That's true too. So the the one parent of mine that actually likes Monty Python. Uh, yes, uh, the uh, frequent things about our existence is Sarah and I always are, will make Monty Python references to each other, some from Life of Brian, but obviously others from like the Holy Grail and, and other situations. And sometimes uh, Sarah's mother gets those. Uh, actually, most of the time she gets them. She just doesn't want to get them. I think. Right. Yeah. She unwillingly understands them. Yes. <laughs> I guess the other thing I, I wanted to say before we got started, yeah, you know, in terms of why, I guess why you picked me to do this one, uh-huh. uh, I haven't done any of the other ones with you. I actually saw this film first run uh, back oh. in 
1979 when I was in college, which obviously you did not. Um, no. It was obviously controversial back then, and I guess it still is a bit now, even though you know it's now hit the list of top thousand films you need to see before you die. I thought back then and still think today that it, it's simply an absolutely brilliant mix of a of a film that makes really makes absolutely no fun of Jesus, which we'll, I'm sure, talk mm-hmm. about later on, who is treated quite respectfully in his only brief cameo in the uh, movie. Uh, but it makes a whole lot of fun of those who follow him and organize mm-hmm. in general, uh, meaning it still, I think, has a lot to say for our time. And thus it oh, yeah. means, uh, in fact, it's one of the three movies that I actually keep on my iPad at all times. So hmm. that's why I'm glad I'm here today. It's actually one of the like six movies that I own on DVD. All right. Life of Brian came out in 1979. I obviously did not see it first run, but it's your, you know, your standard, your standard Monty Python written by Graham Chapman, John Cleese, Terry Gilliam, Eric Idle, Terry Jones, and Michael Palin. We are, of course, recording this, I guess not that shortly anymore, but shortly-ish after uh, Terry Jones's death. Yes, and, and Terry Jones, uh, and that, that's a good thing to note, yes, he did just unfortunately pass away within a month or two, I guess, uh, and he directed the movie as well. Right, yeah, so, and he is a real historian, he's actually a medievalist, and so he's clearly somebody who has an interest in history, which is very much visible in this as well as in Holy Grail, and stars uh, Graham Chapman as Brian and Biggest Dickus. John Cleese as assorted roles, including uh, Reg, High Priest, and the Centurion. Terry Gilliam is the, uh, a couple of individuals. He's the Blessed Are the Greek guy. He's the jail, he's one of the jail guards. Eric Idle as Stan slash Loretta and the Hagler. Terry Jones is also Brian's mother. Michael Palin as Mr. Big Nose, the ex-leper and Pontius Pilate. And Sue Jones Davis as, apparently her name is Judith Iscariot, which is very funny. (laughs) Yes. Which I actually had not known. No, I, I did not know it either until I, I saw your notes on it. So that was uh, a, an, interesting, uh, an interesting choice. So. Yeah, so that's, uh, that's a good little joke in there. How many rounds? For our first main section, the enumeratio or recap, I'll give just a brief orienting recap and then we'll chat through the plot uh, and this will be fun because... We've both seen this movie like 40 times, at least. Right. So just for the brief orientation, Brian begins his life by being mistaken for the infant Jesus. After listening to the Sermon on the Mount, he is intrigued by a group of anti-Roman separatists, particularly a woman named Judith. He joins the group, the People's Front of Judea, and becomes embroiled in their plots from the successful painting of the slogan, Romans Go Home, to the abortive kidnapping of Pilate's wife. After being captured by Pilate and escaping, he unwittingly attracts a following while disguised as a charismatic preacher and is chased by masses believing him to be the Messiah. After sleeping with Judith and failing to get rid of his adherents, he is recaptured and crucified to the jaunty tune of always look on the bright side of life. So uh, we start with dramatic Christian sounding music as the three wise men come to give gifts to the infant Jesus and then accidentally give them to Brian initially instead. Right. It, it really looks when it starts like it's going to be really a standard uh, Easter movie about, you know, the life of Jesus. And, 
as soon as they obviously walk into where Terry Jones is in basically in drag playing Brian's mother, you know, it's not going to be quite that uh, kind of a movie. And kind of shrieks and falls over as soon as she sees them. Right, right. That's uh, the kind of pretty obvious sign. And uh, they chat for a bit. Um, they offer him gifts. You know, they offer uh, them gifts. Uh, the myrrh in particular causes concern as uh, the, uh, they say it's a valuable bomb. And uh, they're concerned about what a bomb is and that it might bite him. Right. <laughs> but otherwise, yeah, she's, yeah. Uh, while she's taken aback by these guys sort of running into her well, where where she is with her new baby, once they break out the gifts, she all of a sudden at that point thinks, well, this may not be such a bad thing. Right. And she asks them a little bit about the baby and uh, she include including what star sign is he? And they say Capricorn. And then that's what are they like to which she respond, they respond, he's our Messiah, the son of God. And she goes, oh, that's, that's Capricorn. That is it. Yeah. yeah they, they suggest to her later that that's not every Capricorn, just this particular one, but uh, it, it is um, an interesting uh, suggestion of what the zodiac sign brings to people born in December, I guess. Right. And so eventually, basically, as soon as they leave, they, I guess, see the light coming from the nearby manger and realize that they got the wrong baby, come back in, take all the gifts, and push over Brian's mother and take off. Right. And, and that you know that that's our um, our our nativity uh, uh, part of the movie, and then I guess that's where it starts with the the opening credits, which are very yeah. Terry Gilliam and uh, uh, obviously very Terry Gilliam in in execution, and and have a lot of Roman imagery, which I I know you're going to yes. talk about later. Uh, but then it shifts basically to what 33 CE, right? Yeah. Yep, so, yeah, 33 years later, so, uh, or I guess maybe it's supposed to be a little before, because the Sermon on the Mount is a little, it's not like right before Jesus died, right? No, I don't think so. I mean, obviously, the movie is collapsing some of the right. time here, but somewhere around 33-ish. Uh, yeah. See. <laughs> So Brian and his mother are going to the Sermon on the Mount, which is described as being on Saturday and about tea time in a very Monty Python-esque comment. And uh, can't, are kind of in the back and can't quite hear anything, which is uh, the line that always has been one of my favorites is that they're kind of struggling to hear and they mishear, blessed are the, che- are the peacemakers as blessed are the cheesemakers. Right. And, uh, <laughs> you know, with the... Uh then trying to uh, interpret that um, strange uh, admonition from Jesus with the, uh, uh, no, it's uh, meant it refers to any manufacturer of dairy products, which uh, <laughs> not probably what was uh, meant, but it, it does, it, it starts you out pretty quickly on what the movie is going to do a lot of, which is sort of go off, not, not on Jesus per se, but on yeah. people who, or in the Jesus business, let's put it that way. <laughs> right. So it's very much kind of making fun of, there's this sort of crowd of people who are kind of half listening to Jesus in the back and struggling to hear what he has to say. And the comedy in this scene doesn't come from the Sermon on the Mount itself. It just comes from these people both misunderstanding it, which seems symbolic. And... Uh, <laughs> And also then fighting with one another, uh, you know, ironically, blessed are the peacemakers. You've got these people who are like starting a literal brawl in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount at the back. Right. Yeah. So that, that, that sort of sets the, 
the the, the stage for what the movie is going to be about. You're going to see little bits and pieces of uh, the Jesus story, which are then hijacked pretty um, uh, <laughs> pretty relentlessly by the Python team. Right. And uh, which even is that, so you have this fight breakout. So at some point we're not even listening to the Sermon on the Mount at all. And then Brian and his mother don't even stay the whole way through. They leave to go to uh, somebody's being stoned. Right. <laughs> which is much more fun than the Sermon on the Mount, I guess. Yes. <laughs> we also here see for the first time the... Uh, People's Front of Judea, the separatist group Brian will be joining, uh, who as they're leaving comment, uh, blessed are the meek, blessed are just about anyone with a vested interest in the status quo. <laughs> so we've got this uh, big group who is uh, not especially interested in Jesus. Right. They go to the stoning. Women are not allowed to attend, but these spectators seem to be entirely women. Uh, all wearing these fake beards. And we've got this vendor outside who's selling both stones of different size and quality and also fake beards for the women to go to the stoning. Right. Is that, uh, maybe you'll talk about that later. Uh, I mean, was stoning, was that even something that would have been something that general, I guess that people did get stoned in that time period and women would have been barred from that? They would not have actually. They would not. I no, I don't know where they got that. I was spending actually a decent amount of time looking it up, and I looked up some stuff in the Bible. I looked up some stuff in the Mishnah, and uh, there people would have been stoned for blasphemy, although it didn't happen very often. And the standard of proof in this particular case, I don't really see how it could have been there. But, uh, you know, he certainly could have been stoned for blasphemy if there was a sufficient number of witnesses, but there's nothing that says that women couldn't go. Okay. And as far as we know, they did. <laughs> there, uh, there's this guy who's being accused of blasphemy because apparently what he said was uh, that piece of halibut is good enough for Jehovah. And that every time he says Jehovah, somebody throws a stone, even though he hasn't started yet. And that at some point when the high priest is trying to tell everybody to calm down, he says Jehovah and they start stoning him. And basically this kind of ends with, we never actually see, I think the original guy gets stoned, but we see one of the spectators and the high priests are stoned to death. Right, right. Uh, I guess it, it ends with uh, somebody bringing, uh, what, 10 of them bringing a stone big enough to crush uh, two or three people and drop size of a Volkswagen and dropping it on the uh, the high priest. So there he goes. And it definitely also, I mean, in the terms of religious hypocrisy, this is definitely also, I would say, a kind of moment of that, that it seems basically like this crowd is just bloodthirsty and they don't actually really care in particular that much about the religious rationale for this punishment. Right. It, it's a blood, sto uh, blood sport punishment that they're all enjoying and religion really is a, is a tool to enjoy it, but has nothing to do with it, so. Right. They head home, on which, at which point Brian meets an ex-leper seeking alms. And at some point he stops them and says, ex-leper, what do you mean ex-leper? And this is one of our other brief appearances of Jesus, is that this is somebody who apparently was cured by Jesus. And uh, basically that means that, you know, one minute he's a leper with a trade and now his livelihood is gone. The ex-leper, uh, who I think is played by Michael Palin, one of his uh, uh -huh. numerous roles. In the movie. And uh, again, um, you would have expected from the, uh, the Christian Bible that anybody that was cured of a disease by Jesus, their life would have been turned around and everything would have been great. Mm -hmm. 
And he makes the point that, well, I had a livelihood as a beggar uh, before that. Now nobody gives me any money because um, I'm an ex-leper. So uh, a little, uh, probably a little uncomfortable for people that are uh, paying attention to the miracles, but uh, an interesting twist. Right. And including there's a bit that um, he kind of suggests like, oh, I mean, you know, maybe it would be nice to basically go back and say like, I don't want leprosy. That's a pain in the ass. But if you could just give me like a little limp a couple of times a week, uh, that would, you know, really help with the begging. Yes. And I, I think he puts it during the week and it would go away on the weekend. So uh, right. <laughs> uh, it wouldn't actually uh, cramp his style too much. Right. So you can still sort of party on the weekends. Right. They get home and there is a Roman soldier waiting for Brian's mother, clearly for sex. At uh, which point he basically gets very mad about this guy being here and uh, his mother tells him that he is a Roman, that his uh, father is a Roman soldier, Nautius Maximus. We have a one line that has not aged especially well, which was when uh, he says, you were raped and she says, at first, yes, that that one's not great in this day and age, uh, that hasn't held up especially well. And Brian is furious and uh, uh, responds and tries to basically defend his Jewishness. Although, I mean, the interesting thing about that is by being, if that was true, by being the son of a Roman, he would be a Roman citizen, which right. really did give you a whole lot of extra, particularly at this time before everybody became a Roman citizen. And um, he would have been... Uh, you know, had many more rights and privileges than than anybody else, certainly anybody else Jewish in Judea. Right. They don't make it of that, but um, we'll get to that when we get to my uh, my movie version of the sequel. But. Okay, yeah, and there is there is a brief moment that we'll talk about later where he do obviously where he does try to ca- sort of capitalize on it, uh, even though he's not happy about it. Right. We then move to the gladiatorial arena where there is a gory scene of scattered limbs that is labeled as being the children's matinee. And Brian is there selling uh, basically an assortment of uh, Roman odd snacks, larks, tongues, and wren's livers. I'll talk some more about those later. And uh, runs into the people's front of Judea, who are sort of grumpily semi-watching. We have an odd form of kind of surprising trans representation where we have a uh, Stan who says that he wants to be Loretta. And uh, this is very much kind of mocked by his, uh, co- uh, by his friends and colleagues, um, especially when he says that he wants to have babies and they tell him that you can't because you don't have a womb. It's very much like ultimately kind of a gender essentialist reading, but it's interesting that we've got this character who, uh, you know, describes himself as wanting to be a woman. Right and that they ultimately say that they will accept his right to have babies even though he cannot have babies, which is no one's fault, not even the Romans. Which, honestly, for the 1970s is like more progressive than a lot of people in America right now, so. Right, although you can then juxtapose that with what we'll get to a little later with, I think there's at least a little bit of, in terms of the way Pontius Pilate and his friends are de- uh, depicted uh, sort of somewhat mincing and that sort of oh, thing. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't say their depiction of uh, potential gay life is not necessarily something oh, no. that raises a lot of eyebrows today. But uh, Absolutely. So overall, not 100% great, but an interesting theme for its time in particular. 
he goes over and uh, first actually he asks them if they are the Judean people's front to which they immediately just say fuck off because they're the people's front of Judea. Right. And he asks if he can join. Eventually they kind of say no. And then he's like, but I really hate the Romans. They're like, yeah, how much? He's like, a lot. And they're like, all right, fine, you can join. But then tell him the only people they hate more than the Romans are the people's front of Judea, or the Judean people's front. This is the start of a recurring thing in the movie where, you know, they're obviously making fun of, uh, um, I don't know, left-wing, probably... Yeah. groups that spend more time fighting amongst themselves than they're spending fighting, uh, with their oppressor and you know they actually it's actually a, a significant recurring theme in the movie oh yes <laughs> yes and i'll talk about the historical context behind that a bit later actually as well but yes, and so they start talking about all of the groups and one of the fun things is that at some point they actually make the mistake and one of them says, and the people's front of Judea. And they're going, what, we're the people's front of Judea. And he goes, oh, I thought we were the popular front. Mm-hmm. They send Brian off to paint the slogan, Romans go home. This is his first mission. Yes. Okay. At which point he's caught by this Roman centurion. And you assume, obviously, in the context of the film, that he's going to be upset about the fact that he's, uh, you know, painting this anti-Roman slogan in a public in a public setting. But instead, what he is actually mad about is the incorrect Latin grammar. So he initially writes uh, "Romanes eunt domus," which any Latin student, myself included, does immediately recognize as being wrong for a number of reasons. And the centurion goes through in just in just complete detail everything that is wrong and in like what's honestly not the worst example of pedagogy in a movie I've ever seen, uh, teaches him the correct Latin grammar. All right, and I've, uh, I've talked about this with my British friends and uh, it's, they, they, they suggest to me it's a pretty spot on uh, uh, rendition of how sort of public school pedagogic public school in terms of really private school right. uh, in the UK tre- uh, teaching of Latin would have would have taken place even up to relatively recent times. Right, and also I will say so. My college Latin teacher first year when I was really doing all the like this kind of grammar level stuff was uh, a big fan of this movie also, and uh, would definitely you know refer to it uh, in that kind of semi-deliberately and you know so I think I think we definitely did get the how many Romans uh, as an actual line in class at some point yes <laughs> but, uh, yes and then Pete and then tells him he has to write the slogan a hundred times so uh, he gets so he gets it right uh, which he does at which point they then obviously uh, a couple of centurions who are unaware of the important grammar lesson he has learned start chasing him since uh, you know this is not legal. I think the, uh, and how many, how many Romans is, uh, it's one of those expressions that, that does continue to pepper our conversations, which uh, maybe your mother yep. doesn't <laughs> appreciate. Yes, she, she usually pretends she doesn't get that one, but I think she does. Then back at the um, People's Front of Judea headquarters, we've got another scene, which uh, is also one of the ones that I would say peppers our conversations pretty frequently which uh, as uh, he arrives, they are uh, talking where and uh, discuss the question of what have the Romans ever done for us? Reg, the leader, begins by saying, you know, what have the Romans ever done for us? And, you know, obviously, you know, it's supposed to be a rhetorical question and then everybody kind of pops up and says, oh, you know, 
So the aqueducts. <laughs> right. Uh, they then go through the laundry list of all the things that Romans would typically do when they came into an area and conquered it. Obviously, somewhat less to provide the benefits to the local population than, you know, wherever Romans went, they wanted to have essentially a Roman type uh, uh, environment around them. So they would, you know, create those same, the aqueducts, the roads, the baths, forums, you know, that, you know, define Roman life. And, uh, you know, all in all, a lot of people, uh, notably not necessarily the Jews, but a lot of people really like that. And uh, yeah, know, it was people, if anything, were fighting to get into the Roman world to enjoy that sort of stuff as opposed to really playing right. it. But that come and give us an aqueduct. Yes, that's a little, uh, a couple centuries beyond this particular uh, time. Right. And the uh, last thing that's added at the end, they, he sort of caves on most of them. And at some point, you know, increasingly it's like, all right, so, you know, we're going to like, we want to kick up all the Romans, except for any of the ones who are associated with like sanitation and public health and viticulture and uh, all sorts of other things. Uh, the wine in particular, by the way, is noted as being like the, wow, we had really terrible stuff before the Romans got here. Right. <laughs> Then uh, finally, somebody brings up a piece uh, to which uh, Rudge goes, peace, fuck off, or, or shut up. Uh, so peace is dismissed as being uh, not important, uh, which I think is an interesting choice. It, it is. It is. Since, of course, the, I, I mean, you know, the Romans are very into the idea that they bring peace, but their idea of bringing peace is essentially, well, if we conquer everything, then there will be peace. <laughs> so it's, uh, you know, something of a... Uh, irony there. So uh, Brian uh, comes back and joins in. They're all very excited about the slogan. And he joins a group that's planning to uh, capture Pontius Pilate's wife and issue demands. For his second mission. So. Right. Yes. So they're going to sneak through the sewers. Um, They are, if they are caught, they should describe themselves as being sewage workers on their way to a conference. And so they're kind of going to the sewers. Uh, Reg does not take part as he has a bad back. So we see him basically going like solidarity as he shuts the sewer in somebody's face. Behind them, yes. Taking any yeah. risk for himself. Yeah. Yep. And then on the way, they run into another anti-Roman group, the Campaign for Free Galilee, which has basically the same plan and end up just then fighting one another instead of uh, joining. And I'm not really, and there's a little, I mean, one of the things with Python and particularly for Americans is it is very British comedy and we don't really get everything. I'm pretty Mm -hmm. sure that the accent of the person leading the, uh, whatever is it, the uh, campaign for free Galilee is Welsh. So I think uh, there's a little of that going on that, you know, you've got the different, you know, groups within the UK, uh, Right. As, as part of the, the various separatist groups. So, you know, that's mm-hmm. a uh, thing going on here. Interesting. They start fighting with one another. Uh, Brian, uh, you know, kind of yells out, like, we shouldn't be fighting with each other. We should be struggling against our common enemy. And they stop and they go, right, the Judean people's front. At which point he goes, no, the Romans. And they're like, oh. And then they just go back to fighting and they all kill each other. Right. And, and the... I think the I think it's one of these scenes, and there's a variety of these scenes where, you know, Romans at some point come on and and observe this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. They just start rolling their eyes like, 
people, these people will never get rid of us because they hate each other much more than they right. hate us. Right. Which, yeah, has, that's, is sort of a real problem. Brian is captured as the only person left standing and thrown into the dungeon. Uh, initially, there's this uh, eccentric gentleman there who's been hanging around, hanging literally on the wall for a while and uh, describes him as you lucky bastard because they've spit in his face. Right. I mean, he's, uh, he, he's the uh, guy that's been hung up by his uh, uh, wrists for like, you know, 10 years. And uh, he's, you know... Uh, thinks Brian is, uh, I mean, it's sort of silly, but uh, Gibbs, I think that's John Cleese playing that part. Mm. He gives him an opportunity to sort of rant and rave and, uh, you know, it's fun. It's a fun scene. Doesn't really add anything, but it's a fun scene. Yeah. He then goes to see, or is taken to see Pontius Pilate. And uh, as you were saying earlier, he is definitely portrayed in this kind of like mincing effeminate way. Also, you know, worth noting that the main plot line surrounding him is that is mocking a speech impediment. Yes. Which also has not aged too well as a joke. It, it, it hasn't. Uh, uh, but it remains an incredibly funny scene. And not, not, so, not for that, really, mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to the names. The Roman names. Yes. The uh, uh, <laughs> which we can still laugh at uh, because you know you put a U.S. on the end of anything and then you know you have a you can have a fun time with it. it. Sounds Latin. This is a yes. This is fake pig Latin, I guess. So right. yes, yeah, so that's where it goes. Is so basically Brian at this point does basically try to get out of this by saying, "No, I'm Roman. My father was a Roman." Naudius Maximus. Nadius Maximus, and they all start laughing. All the centurions start laughing. They say, oh, it's a joke name. Like, you know, there's no real centurion named Nadius Maximus. And then they say, you know, it's a fake name like Dickus Dickus, at which point Pontius Pilate says, but I have a very great friend in Rome named Biggest Dickus. <laughs> and the rest of the scene is basically just the centurions just in, just uh, basically bursting into laughter and completely unable to control themselves as uh, he talks about his friend Biggest Dickus and his wife, whose name is Incontinentia Buttocks, I believe. Yeah, and and just as, uh, you know, I did this, I did a little studying, so of course I went to the uh, IMDB uh, trivia about it, and apparently a good chunk of this scene was really done what's the way, what's the word I'm looking for sort of uh extemporaneously and hmm. the 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 people playing the centurions weren't really told exactly what was going to happen and you know they were just told to sort of react and they re- I mean you, you see the expressions on their faces they're yeah really trying to not laugh because getting killed is like the you know potential result of laughing in this situation and the expressions on their faces where they keep from cracking up are amazing. And they're apparently quite natural. This is just literally what they were improvised circumstances. Yeah. And especially like there's one guy who literally like kind of twists his lips into like an almost not as uh, he Pontius Pilate goes up to him and goes, uh, do you feel like a little chuckle when I mention my friend? (laughs) 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 So Brian takes advantage of all of this to sneak off 
he is in what is like a very bizarre Monty Python style scene is uh, this kind of absurdism is captured by aliens and then the ship like crash lands leaving him basically where he started. Although, I mean, I, I agree. This is very Terry Gilliam, Gilliam-esque in a big way. Yeah. However, it is also a classic deus ex machina moment where they need yeah. Brian out. Not that they put him going to the top of the tower. So it's mm-hmm. not, you know, they've done it themselves. But it's, you know, this is something that you did see in classical. I mean, we still use the term. Yeah. Today. It's essentially mm-hmm. a plot device where, you know, the gods come down to, you know, swoop in and right. something to fix it. And that's essentially when the alien ship coming in is doing. So, yeah. you know, it looks very Python-esque, but, you know, all these guys were also, you know, British uh, learning Latin growing up. So this yep. is, you know, not, this is what they knew. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, there's films that do that in a less self-aware way that they're mocking, presumably. So. Yes. He is, uh, he crash lands and then, uh, you know, takes off. He also, this is the, uh, the don't you want to haggle scene where he tries to buy a fake beard as a disguise and attempts to just pay full price for it. At which point, uh, you know, the guy says, don't you want to haggle? <laughs> and of course, there, there's many places in the world today where that still is the way you have to buy something. Uh, certainly a rug in Istanbul, but. Uh... Right. I think we use that a couple of times when dealing with rug buying in Istanbul. Right. So he basically pressures him into haggling. You know, at some point he ends up getting both the beard and a free gourd and then running off and reaches headquarters. They are reading off the list of the dead. And before they get to Brian, it's uh, this kind of starts to sort of biblical names. So it's Daniel, Joshua, Job, and then judges. <laughs> right. <laughs> So Brian kind of bursts in. They are concerned about the fact that he's led the Romans to them, which he, of course, has. They arrive and are searching. Basically, all of them kind of, like, throw sheets over their heads and stand in corners. Brian goes out onto the balcony. The centurion is also chatting with the old man, who's the one who's the kind of, like, manages the hideout, I guess, and talking to him about the penalty, which is crucifixion, to which point he says, ah, crucifixion's not so bad. At least it gets you out in the open air. Right. <laughs> and I think this is one of the other things that people consider to be somewhat blasphemous, you know, that you have this guy being like, yeah, crucifixion, like crucifixion's not that bad. And, I, I think this is probably where it started being yeah. uncomfortable <laughs> for uh, uh, people that were trying to read, well, reading into it that it's an attack on Christianity. As right. A, um, attack on Jesus. It certainly wasn't that. It might have been yeah. on Christianity. Right. <laughs> So Brian is hiding out on the balcony and there's this kind of row of apocalyptic creatures and uh, he is, uh, and basically he, the, finally he kind of falls off the balcony and knocks one of them over and then poses as one of them in order to basically, so the Romans won't notice him and kind of starts talking. He's initially not doing a great job. He tries to do this parable about birds and they just start asking him what he has against birds and why he's worried that the birds don't have jobs. And uh, then basically starts spouting like pretty much nonsense and uh, but then trails off at the end basically because he sees the soldiers leaving although some of what he's saying is a little bit of a parody and not not a yeah not a attack parody but you know the lilies of the field and the sparrows and you know it is the kind of things that you see jesus saying so mm-hmm. you know it's obviously it doesn't get very well developed He's really doing yeah. this 
to avoid the Romans and, you know, pretend he's make them not notice him. But that's uh, another thing people, religious people looking at this would say, wait a minute. Right. And some of the stuff at the end is almost sort of like Bible Mad Libs. Like they took out, like they took a kind of couple of verses from the Bible and then cut out some of the nouns and switched them with kind of random nouns. Yes. And the other thing that clearly is, I think, mocking religious people is that he sort of trails off and then all of a sudden all of these people are like, ooh, what do you have to say? Is it the secret of eternal life? And then uh, start, you know, basically chasing him because all of a sudden they need to hear what he has to say. Right. This is, this is where we shift from, I mean, to the extent anybody had a problem with what Brian was doing at this point, the, re- the movie going forward is really shifting upon now what are his followers like? And that's the yeah. point. It's deadly satirical and yes. uh, really probably led people objecting to it more because they didn't like the portrayal of themselves than they yeah the portrayal of Jesus. Right. So there's this initial just kind of like fervor. They're kind of grabbing things. He's given some, uh, he's given his gourd to some beggar who was next to him. And, uh, you know, somebody then grabs the gourd and says, you know, follow the gourd, the holy gourd of Jerusalem. His shoe falls off. And then they start this whole debate about what the sign of the shoe means. And then also whether they should follow the shoe or the gourd. So it's also definitely a kind of mocking of the fact that, you know, Christianity uh, kind of broke down into a variety of different interpretations uh, relatively quickly. And right. And, and worshiping, so. uh, worshiping objects to boot. Right. Right. So, and, you know, very much, uh, you know, this is very much a kind of indication already of the cult of relics, which becomes, uh, you know, quite a big deal. And, you know, these, these would be solid contact relics. We, yes. we, we just saw St. Francis's shoe. That's right. It's sitting in the cathedral on the St. Francis's 700-year-old sweaty sandal. <laughs> he is running from these people and then to hide jumps into a hole, which has this old man in it. And uh, so as he jumps and lands on this guy's foot, the guy yelps and then says like, oh God, oh damn, I've inadvertently you know, broken my vow of silence that I've had for I think it's 40 years. Now, is this kind of hermit type guy something that you would have seen at in Judea at this time? I mean, obviously, I think you see it in, you know, Christian monks at some point at a later time period. So I'm not sure what what this is, or it's a mishmash, possibly, which is also a... It's something of a mishmash. There's definitely, like, people would have taken various kinds of vows that they then, you know, could have followed, and potentially some of them did so in isolation. Uh, the fact that he also clearly hasn't cut his hair in ever uh and also about 40 years is kind of akin to the nazarites that that's one of the things that they're supposed to do is not cut their hair okay so it's clearly a kind of mishmash of things but you know it's sort of referencing very that kind of vow culture as well as uh the kind of slightly later emphasis on hermits which is a big big christian thing the people find him basically because this guy now that he's finally allowed to talk won't shut up and is leaping around and singing and they run over and uh, proclaim Brian the Messiah. To which point he says, no, he's not. Uh, somebody says, I say you are, and I should know I followed a few. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> so he was making fun of the uh, gullibility of some of these people and their kind of willingness to believe basically anything. Right. And also he, you know, he says, I'm not. And then somebody says, only the true Messiah would deny his divinity. And then he says, fine, I am. They go, he agrees, he agrees, he's the Messiah. Right. <laughs> 
it's it's very well done and it's uh the 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 depiction of the crowd it, it's hard not to laugh at it although i think anybody thinking about it you know is saying this is the congregation <laughs> right right and right. very much also, you know, along the lines of religious people, maybe, you know, certain religious people at least, uh, not to recognize or not uh, wanting to recognize this as a unflattering portrait of themselves, that there is very much this way in which they are, to some extent, willfully misunderstanding him in a way that you could certainly argue that there are people who willfully misunderstand the words of their own sacred texts. Yes. The old, he, uh, at some point, you know, they say, like, we're hungry, we can't eat. And he's like, oh, there's some juniper bushes over there. And they go and take the juniper bushes. And, you know, the old guy is upset because they're stealing his juniper bushes. And uh, he gets mad. And at some point he says, oh, this guy's not the Messiah. He's, you know, just some jerk who jumped into my hole. And they, uh, you know, call him a heretic and an unbeliever and is implied, go off and kill him. Yeah. And that's pretty much... Uh... <laughs> an attack on what Christianity became, certainly once it became the majority religion, so. Right, right. Judith has witnessed the whole thing, and they go off together. It skips forward to after they've had sex. And uh, we, I forgot that there was like male full frontal nudity, which is not that common, especially in the 70s. It, it's not that common. Uh, and the other thing that I saw, which is an interesting tidbit, apparently, and in a moment of realism, uh, Terry Jones, apparently Graham Chapman, who's playing Brian, uh, wasn't circumcised and right. was very obvious uh, in when they did the first shots in it. And apparently they uh, faked circumcision with the uh, creative use of a rubber band. Uh, now, <laughs> if you look at it, it does appear more realistic as to what one seen in uh, first century Judea, but the aid of an elastic band. There actually were, uh, there actually were, I know, uh, like, wait, things that people used at uh, the time and a little bit earlier, there were ways to, like, hide your circumcision through, like, some creative pulling. Yeah, same thing, except in reverse. So. Right, that apparently some Jews would do uh, during the uh, Greek period when competing in, like, Greek naked wrestling, because the Greeks would make fun of their circumcision. He opens the window entirely naked and greets a crowd that appears to be, you know, half of Jerusalem and shuts the window immediately. His mother then comes up and is not happy about the situation. She's also not happy when she sees Judith, who, by the way, she at some point refers to as a Welsh tart, and she is, in fact, Welsh, right. the actress in real life. Uh, yes. So. She goes out and speaks to the people and tells them that he is not the Messiah. He's a very naughty boy, but eventually lets them speak to him for a minute. And uh, again, very much, you know, this is a big mockery of... Uh, Christians or perhaps religious people in general, they uh, speak to him in perfect unison. And he keeps trying to tell them, you don't need to follow me. You don't need to follow anyone. You're all individuals. We're all different. At which point the entire crowd in perfect unison goes, yes, we are all individuals. We are all different. Right. In, in perfect lockstep, uh, enchanting. And apparently there were, uh, there were like 2,000 people in this scene. Like actual people? Yeah. Yeah. They had a, there was a huge, they had a huge number of people. I mean, extras, of course, but they had a ton of people out there. Um, so it is, it, it, when you open the window, it's actually a very dramatic scene when, when <laughs> you know, and he's naked. And then, you know, as you say, half of Jerusalem looks like it's uh, sitting out outside his doorstep. Right. 
So he tries to, you know, so he's basically still kind of trying to get rid of them unsuccessfully. He eventually, you know, his mother says it's been one minute and he goes back inside. Uh, it's also perfect lockstep, including even the tone when she says, like, when they say, that's not a minute. And she goes, yes, it was. And they go, oh, no, it wasn't. And uh, that's actually pretty impressive, to be honest, in terms of like how right. perfect the unison is. Yes. They also ask her if she's a virgin, if it's not a personal question. Yeah, that, that's uh, probably another one of those lines that uh, will offend any number of people. Uh, yes. This, if, if they have uh, <laughs> their thoughts about the virgin birth or so. Uh, right. Uh, to which she says, you know, not a personal question. Of course it's a personal question. Kind of goes back inside and they go, yeah, she's definitely a virgin. She wouldn't answer it. She's definitely a virgin. <laughs> Which, of course, also, I mean, you know, again, like, we know very clearly in the context of the movie for any number of reasons that she very much is not, so. Right. <laughs> Brian goes back inside. Uh, Judith is uh, trying to convince him to be a leader. The People's Front of Judea has shown up and is trying to, like, divide people and, you know, say, like, all right, those possessed by demons go over there and people with the babies to be kissed go over there for now. And she goes outside and then very shortly is arrested. Meanwhile, Pilate is preparing for his Passover address and his plan to release one of the prisoners, which now with Brian is 140. So people who are supposed to be crucified for Passover. And his friend, Bigasticus, has come all the way from Rome to hear the address. And, and to participate in it, as we will yes. see. Yeah, so uh, as mentioned, you know, one of the kind of big jokes throughout has been this speech impediment. So Pontius Pilate is that he says W for R. Bigasticus also has a list. And uh, so uh, there's, you know, they're kind of going out and they're and he kind of gives this address and then they ask who he wants to release. And uh, people come up with like Wadawick, uh, you know, saying it like that, you know, the Wapist and, you know, there's no Roderick. And then uh, in an attempt to calm the crowd down, Biggest Dickus then goes and reads the list. And it's, you know, people like Samson, the Sadducee Strangler. So obviously things that highlight his speech impediment. And there's just like a lot of people laughing at both of them. Right. And the crowd is literally rolling on the ground by this point. Yeah. Judith, meanwhile, has tried to get the PFJ to rescue Brian. In another, I would say, parody of some, uh, probably some leftist organizations, there's a bit where they basically say, like, ah, yes, this calls for immediate discussion, and then just sit and keep, like, talking about it, and do not, in fact, uh, do anything. And so she goes out, and she does, in fact, kind of yell out the name Brian, and is able to have this catch on, because it does, in fact, highlight uh, poor Pontius Pilate's speech impediment, uh, but there is, in fact, a Brian's. They, may, they do give the order to release Brian. Brian is put into the crucifixion procession, which is uh, presented as uh, being very much this kind of, like, weirdly... Going to the DMV, maybe? Uh, the yeah! <laughs> I also have always kind of read it as like making fun of British queuing. I think a little bit of that too, yes. So <laughs> so they kind of all go up and there's the Roman guard, Centurion, uh, you know, he, they, he goes crucifixion, good. Out of the door, line on the left, one cross each. There's actually one guy who at some point, like, a, who's actually the guy from before who basically started the brawl, who uh, says, oh, no, crucifixion, no freedom. And it's also made pretty clear that he actually could have gotten away with that. Right. Then he says, oh, nope, just kidding. It's crucifixion for me as well. So uh, <laughs> it's, uh, although we'll see, he does take advantage of it a little later. So uh, yes. 
also there is somebody who there's this like very kind of nice guy who kind of shows up and says to somebody like let me help you bear your burden and he goes oh great it's some like shopkeeper and uh you know the person who's presumably a criminal just hands his cross to this guy and then takes off uh and, it is. and you know and again that's that is a story from the the christian bible that you know when jesus was stumbling with the cross this guy named Simon of Cyrene, I think, offered to help him with it, mm -hmm. carried it to the place of crucifixion, and then he was not put on the cross at that point. But right. this sort of parroting that scene as well, and that probably is something a little uncomfortable for right. Christians re uh, watching this. Right. But again, you know, it's something that technically is not actually mocking Jesus because, you know, I mean, the whole point of the story is, you know, Jesus, Jesus didn't do that. Jesus didn't like take off and leave right, the guy right. <laughs> Mocking what would really happen if, you know, somebody that just was getting crucified, if they had a way to get out of it, would take that right. opportunity. Yeah, yeah. Which, you know, fair. They're nailed up. There's then also a further sectarian division. There's this complaint that one person, it turns out, is a Samaritan. And somebody else complains that they're supposed to be in a strictly Jewish section and don't want to be crucified near any Samaritans. Yeah, uh, there, cer there certainly were a lot of distancing, social distancing, yes. as it were, between Jews and Samaritans. They did not yeah. uh, look respectfully upon each other. So uh, They did not, yeah. The People's Front of Judea do arrive as, uh, you know, after Brian's been nailed up, but uh, not as the rescue party, but in fact only to read a statement and then sing for he's a jolly good fellow. Then while Brian is yelling at them, he uh, fails to notice that the Romans have actually showed up with the order to release Brian. So that other guy says, oh, no, I'm Brian. And he gets let down. <laughs> Right. And that's actually in terms of parodies, and again, going back to other Roman movies. And again, it's, it's flipped around in the, in the movie Spartacus. There's this great scene where all of the, uh, basically they say, will the Romans say, will we'll take, will if you tell us who Spartacus is, we'll mm -hmm. release the rest of you and we'll just crucify him. And of course, everybody says, I am Spartacus. I am Spartacus. So it's a very moving scene because they're all mm -hmm. trying to protect him and they're willing to risk their lives for that. Whereas here, again, it's totally flipped. Once they realize somebody named Brian can get off, they're saying, oh, I'm Brian. No, I'm Brian. <laughs> Including the I'm Brian and so is my wife. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> The Judean People's Front, uh, who have been mentioned throughout but not yet seen, I believe, also arrive and commit mass suicide, uh, ending at the end by saying, that'll show them. <laughs> Judith arrives and basically then, like, praises him for what he's doing, and uh, his mom shows up and is very angry and says, go ahead and be crucified, see if I care. And is clearly, like, upset, but also, you know, just kind of, like, then takes off and is sort of blaming him for it, which is very much a reversal of the traditional, you know, Virgin Mary at the crucifixion of Christ. Yes. So, and then it, uh, essentially, he, you know, realizes there's not much hope here, but it uh, ends by having somebody and uh, it begin by, say, um, by saying, like, oh, just, you know, don't think about, like, what's bad. Think about the, you know, good things. And uh, they sing, always look on the bright side of life. Yes, which, which so. ends the movie. Again, 
probably a somewhat uncomfortable scene under the circumstances for for Christians, but in in the scheme of things, it's it's an interesting it's an interesting ending. Right, and yeah, you know, you can kind of uh, you can kind of get why people who are very devoted Christians might not love the idea of a bunch of people on crucifixes singing this like really cheery song. Right. <laughs> How many Romans? For the next section, Vera et Falso, or True and False, uh, I take a little time to talk about basically things the movie got right and wrong. So there's a few things that I'm saving for the uh, next section where I kind of go into a historical phenomenon in more detail, but I'll mention a couple of little things now. First, I do want to comment that the discussion of astrology at the beginning, while obviously couched in somewhat modern terms, is not entirely out of place since the zodiac is uh, you know a greek thing and also very popular among the romans and including even in judea that there's actually even semi-heretical uh, from a jewish perspective to be honest zodiac mosaics from a little after this period but uh, right. still and this really was the greek part of the roman world since right prior to the romans conquering it it was really greek i mean alexander the great Basically, this was a Greek area from Alexander the Great on, and, you know, that culture was basically very ingrained by, by this point. I mean, it had been, right. been hundreds of years already. Right, which uh, is relatedly so. The, uh, in terms of other things they got right, the Latin grammar itself is perfect. <laughs> But the other thing related to that is that it also makes sense that Brian's Latin is not good. Right that for the vast majority of people in Judea, including relatively well-educated people, their languages would be, basically their kind of main vernacular would have been Arabic, and then slightly better educated people would have known Greek, and then some people would have also known Hebrew, depending on the kind of flavor of your education. Although I'll, I'll add in, while, and I'll, I'll defer to you on the Latin grammar being perfect, uh, I'm sure you're right, and I, I think I've seen that elsewhere, the Latin lettering is not right because no. they use the U, the modern U, yeah, of the Roman U, which actually looks like a V. And you know, that I guess the 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 modern U, and I think they sort of just thought maybe they just felt people wouldn't understand right looking at it that way. But the modern that U that they use in the movie didn't come in, I think, until the 1500s or 1400s, something like that. Right. I mean, if you, well, actually, in a lot of the things that I read, like U's, V's, N's, and N's are actually all indistinguishable, which is fun. But yeah, but so, yeah, but that's definitely, yeah, the lettering is not correct. But uh, yeah, but the Latin actually is, and uh, including even like the explanations of the grammar are correct. It does make sense that like Latin is basically the like fourth language that anyone in Judea would have bothered to really try to learn. So it makes sense that his Latin is pretty mediocre. In fact, even Josephus, who is very much, uh, you know, Romanized and eventually ends up, you know, moving to Rome with a pension from the emperor, he's writing, he's not writing in Latin, he's writing in Greek. Okay. There are, I also wanted to note, there's a kind of brief uh, shot here uh, where you see kind of Roman images being brought into Jerusalem and there's kind of like some statue of a Roman emperor. And I do want to note that actually that is one of the things that Pontius Pilate apparently uh, got into trouble for and was fighting with some of the Jews about is that he tried to put up imperial standards with an image of Caesar on it. And uh, basically everybody kind of protested and he sort of gave up and got rid of them. Right. So, yeah, so that's a reference at least to something. 
then there's a couple of things that I would say they're sort of bits that are not, that are kind of right and bits that are wrong. The first is that there's this imagery in the credits, which is a very pan-Roman and therefore it does include a lot of items that do not actually exist at this time. So it's basically just Roman stuff. Triumphal arches, fine. There's, I'm pretty sure, a statue of Augustus. Yeah, I think so. Although there would have been a statue. I mean, Augustus, yeah, that one's fine. That was fine. The big thing that is much later is that uh, the most prominent image is that there's this head which in, keeps kind of running into things and knocking them over. And that head is the head of, the, of Constantine from this monumental statue that, you know, the actual head is way, way taller than I am. Um, yeah. That and, opening uh, yeah. sequence also has, in terms of the arches, the arch that they seem to use, and you know, it's used as a credit device, you know, where it yeah. keeps going and going and going with different credits written on it. But it seems to be the Arch of Constantine, which is also from that right. same fourth century um, CE period. So, right. And again, I'll, I'll, I'll skip forward since I don't think we we didn't talk about this, but. Uh, one thing I noted that I think was true, and this again, this is outside the credits, but when they're in the pilot's palace, you know, you see the there's, and you're in there a couple times in the movie, there's frescoes on the walls, and they're mm -hmm. clearly based on the Via of the Mysteries in Pompeii, hmm. uh, which, you know, that, well, they were certainly on the walls before 79 CE when the eruption took place. I'm not sure how long they were there before then, but that's right. too far off in terms of the, the time period. And that, yeah. that kind of, you know, Roman, I mean, you wouldn't probably have seen, you know, erotic frescoes on the wall of the palace uh, where the uh, governor was in the main room, but uh, at least it's a time correct artistic device. Yeah, so it stylistically, at least, certainly, certainly works. We have uh, the reference to the gladiatorial games in Jerusalem, which is also a little bit off in terms of the timing. So uh, uh, Herod did institute Roman-style gladiatorial games and built an amphitheater kind of on the outskirts of the city. And uh, basically, most people in Jerusalem or the locals in Jerusalem really hated it which uh, you do actually kind of get some sense of in the movie in that there's like 10 people in this huge amphitheater. Right. The People's Front of Judea are clearly just kind of using it as a meeting spot. So that actually does kind of track, but in reality, they seem to have basically given up on Jerusalem as a location for gladiatorial games because there was uh, so much negative uh, sentiment against it. And so uh, Herod's grandson, Agrippa, was a big fan of the games, but uh, kind of very um, overtly kept them out of Jerusalem at this point. So uh, having them in Jerusalem probably doesn't follow, but uh, the fact that, you know, they're there, but nobody locally seems to be fond of them uh, does work. Sort of reminiscent of like bullfights in Catalonia. Right. Yes. Which has now been outlawed. Then there are the, uh, the Roman uh, imperialist tidbits, as Reg calls them, that uh, Brian is selling. So it mentions uh, lark's tongues, otter's noses, ocelot spleens, wren's livers, and badger's spleens, among others. So these are mostly not specifically Roman food items, and ocelot in particular are native to the Americas, so that's probably not a very likely one. But I do want to note that the Romans did, it seems, have street food, 
based on archaeological evidence, there seems to be play, uh, kind of things that have been identified as basically street food stalls. And uh, so that's kind of similar in some ways. And uh, also, while not necessarily these particular things, the Romans were very fond of organ meats and of the consumption of animals that we might today consider unusual. And so, uh, in fact, uh, Apicius's De Re Coconaria has a recipe for stuffed dormouse. Yep. And uh, I mean, we've obviously known about this from the text. And one thing uh, I actually saw, actually, over the holidays, uh, we saw a Pompeii exhibit. And in the uh, exhibit, so this has been confirmed by the archaeology, there was a jar that was actually used for keeping and fattening up dormice, which of course were a big delicacy. And the jar was constructed in a way that the dormouse could be kept in there. It had little like exercise ramps within the inside jar and holes to feed it and that sort of thing. And if you just looked at this and didn't know anything about it, you'd look at this and say, what could this possibly be? Mm -hmm. But types of containers were actually described in the ancient texts as well. So when they found this, they actually said, oh my God, this is a dormouse. Right. Uh, fattener uh, uh, <laughs> thing. And, uh, you know, so it is an example where, I mean, not the ancient texts don't always uh, uh, confirm the archeology span or vice versa. This is uh, something they do. You know, uh, they they were able to look at that and say exactly what they had, whereas otherwise yeah. they'd probably scratch their heads forever. Right. Then there's crucifixion, which uh, was, of course, in fact, a relatively common Roman punishment and used for a lot of people. In addition to Jesus, Jesus wasn't like special. And I do just want to note, though, is that the location of the nails is the traditional one, but uh, archaeological evidence has confirmed that it is incorrect, that the nails would have, in fact, gone through the wrists and ankles as opposed to, like, the center of the palm and the foot. Yeah. And we actually do have an, I have an image that I show to my students every semester when I do this of, uh, we, we've got a dude's foot with a nail through it. Right. <laughs> So then there is some also uh, one thing that I wanted to mention that this uh, we kind of touched on before that I don't quite know where they got it from, which is uh, the kind of women not going to the stoning thing and how the stoning works in general. Blasphemy is something that is uh, a crime to be punished by stoning. And uh, in addition, by the way, it emphasizes that the witnesses and other people involved should not use the name of God uh, during the trial, that in fact, you should not be doing what the high priest does, where like he says Jehovah to indicate that don't do anything, even if he does say Jehovah, you're actually not supposed to really do that during the trial. There's like this kind of one bit at the very end where basically everybody's kicked out except for the judges. And then the witnesses can like repeat what the guy said word for word and include the name of God, but otherwise you're not supposed to. However, the standards of proof are high enough that they didn't really actually stone that many people. And in particular, this guy, it doesn't really make sense that he would have, uh, that there would have been the witnesses necessary, because it seems like he's basically said something to his wife while they were having dinner at home. Women, although they could be at stonings, are not valid witnesses, and she, you need to have She two. couldn't have turned him in? <laughs> You need to have two people who actually witnessed uh, him saying it. So it's actually a pretty, a fairly high standard of proof for it that you needed to have like two, basically he would have needed to have two male dinner guests who were in his house and heard what he said and then were willing to testify. And then were willing to thank him for the nice fish meal by, in for right. blasphemy. 
Not right. very nice, even if no. uh, theoretically it could have happened, I guess. Right. It seems unlikely that in his particular situation, he could have actually been executed. But it does uh, emphasize in a lot of these stonings, uh, uh, in the kind of texts about stonings, that uh, the whole community is supposed to be there. And I looked through the Bible, uh, the, the kind of relevant sections in the Bible and the Mishnah, and there's nothing saying women can't be there. And in fact, it's implied, you know, certainly that like potentially actually they should be. How many Romans? I then in the next section, the Historia et Veritas section, wanted to talk about a kind of particular real historical event or phenomenon. And so here I'm going to bring up some of the things that in fact, overall, I think they did do pretty well, which have to do with uh, some of the Roman Judean tensions, Judean ambivalence in some ways about Roman rule, and uh, some of the internal tensions and factionalism as well that we really saw during uh, this period and a little bit after. The Romans essentially conquered Judea by invitation. In 63 BCE, there's a civil war within the ruling Hasmonean family. And uh, one of these two brothers that are fighting basically like invites the Romans to take over and in exchange for installing him as the person in charge, which they do. And that, that's the dynasty that Herod is ultimately part of, right? Oh, no, Herod's nobody. Oh, he's nobody. Okay. So Herod is actually the son of some guy who was an advisor to the last Hasmoneans. Okay. The Hasmoneans basically got killed off during the brief Parthian invasion of Rome. That was a kind of brief period in the midst of uh, Roman rule of Judea in, uh, I think, like 30 something, 40, I think 40 BCE. They, the Parthians took over and basically installed the other branch of the Hasmonean family. So they then killed off and I think blinded the Hasmoneans that the Romans had put in place. So then when the Romans took back over, what ended up happening is that Herod took off to Rome, got to be buddy-buddy with Augustus, and then said to Augustus, hey, can I have some soldiers reconquer Judea and be in charge? And Augustus said, sure. Okay. So he's not related to the Hasmoneans at all. He's his own thing. And actually is uh, arguably, or, you know, is kind of debatably from the perspective of the time Jewish, since he was descended from uh, a group of people who the Hasmoneans had actually forced to convert to Judaism about a century before. Okay. There are tensions relatively quickly, in part over Romans not always being great at respecting Jewish customs. So uh, Pompey basically immediately decides to like pop into the part of the temple that only the high priest is allowed to enter one day a year. And Pompey's just like, I'm going to check that part out. There are issues uh, relatively shortly after this with Caligula, who, uh, believing himself to be a god, demands that a statue of him as Jupiter be installed in the temple. And obviously, you know, nobody's happy about that. And then basically it's gotten around by the fact that he conveniently dies. Not very, conven not very convenient for him, but convenient to resolve the problem. Right. And we also have a decent amount of texts from including some very famous Roman authors, including Cicero and Taurus, basically making fun of the Jews for things like, among others, circumcision, monotheism, and proselytism. That uh, this is back in the day, the, uh, the whole thing about Jews not being a proselytizing religion is a relatively recent one. And in this period, Horace, in fact, kind of makes fun of like those silly proselytizing Jews. Huh. I hadn't heard that. Oh. 
Roman rule, however, did, as we talked about earlier, bring some uh, real benefits, arguably, uh, you know, for their own purposes, but nevertheless, and so, you know, improved infrastructure, stability. The Roman peace is, you know, as mentioned, a kind of peace that's peace through conquest, but uh, it does, you know, reduce piracy, which is, was apparently a kind of big issue in the area prior to that. And, you know, they are overall permitted to practice their own law. And in fact, Herod, using mostly, you know, Roman money, is able to basically entirely rebuild the temple. The, uh, the temple structures that are still standing in the temple that was then destroyed in 70 CE is really, for the most part, a structure built in the first century BCE and has very little to do with anything that was built back in the 5th, 6th century BCE. Right. So the... So. The, the Western Wall is the Western Wall of Herod's temple. Right, yeah. So we call it the second temple, but it's arguably really kind of the third. Mm. Since it wasn't destroyed, but like it was like very heavily renovated to the extent yeah. that like it had very little in common with the previous building. So there is some ambivalence, which comes out in a Talmud passage, which is oddly similar to the what have the Romans ever done for us scene in which there's a this a couple of them are sitting a couple rabbis are kind of sitting around in and uh, one of them in this Talmud passage starts talking and says how fine are the works of these people the Romans they have made streets they have built bridges they have erected baths and there's this one other guy who's silent and then somebody else Shimon Bar Yochai answers and says, all what they have made, they have made for themselves. They built marketplaces to set harlots in them, baths to rejuvenate themselves in, bridges to levy tolls for them. And then the guy who was talking about how great the Romans were goes and like tattles on them and the other two end up getting in trouble. Oh, and as uh, you know, we, we talked about earlier, I mean, yes, they did build it for themselves because whenever they went anywhere, they wanted all the Roman comforts of home available to them. Uh, so that's certainly true, but you know that it's also true. I think that if you wanted to avail yourselves of those things, you could. And you know, mm -hmm. certainly yeah. the Gauls ultimately became very Romanized in Gaul, and yeah. the Britons did in the t period of time the Romans were there as well. So you know, you people could get used to it. The rabbis apparently right. didn't. So <laughs> now. And the Judean issue with the Romans was in part also that around this time, there develops this essentially belief among a few different groups that there's an inherent conflict between basically a Jewish belief in God and Roman rule, that God is king and that no Jew should submit to a human ruler who is not ruling by divine authority from a Jewish perspective. And one of the reasons that the Romans were probably not thrilled about Jesus is because messianism and the kind of interest in the Messiah in this period was pretty political in a lot of ways and is very much kind of expressed often as this kind of battle between the light and the dark, which is very heavily indicated by which we mean by the dark, we do mean the Romans. So that messianism is very much about the restoration of Jewish kingship. So not what the Romans want. Okay. No. Definitely. Yeah. This tension does end up breaking out into a revolt in 66 CE, and this is the revolt that does ultimately end in the destruction of the temple in 70. And uh, one of the reasons that this revolt did not ultimately turn out particularly well is that there was constant infighting. Josephus, uh, a turncoat who was Jewish and then sided with the Romans and got a very nice house in Rome, 
reports that the revolt in Jerusalem was parted into three factions, one faction fighting against the other. And that basically this continued until right up into the point where Titus is uh, laying siege to Jerusalem, uh, which he adds, uh, whereas before the several parties in Jerusalem had been dashing against one another perpetually, the war from outside, which had now suddenly come upon them in a violent manner, but the first stop to their contentions against one another. So basically that the Judean rebels spent more time fighting one another than they did fighting the Romans. Well, and, and certainly not, well, that's certainly historically true. And I think the Pythons were certainly looking at, this certainly isn't a unique phenomenon in right. uh, first century uh, Judea. It happens anytime your uh, groups are combating a, a foreign power, essentially. Right. I mean, if you read Orwell's homage to Catalonia, it uh, makes pretty clear that that's one of the reasons for uh, the failure of the Spanish fight against the fascists. Is right. Very similar. Yep. Yeah. So, yeah. So I would say overall, I mean, this is a movie that I think does a pretty good job of displaying some of the aspects of uh, both internal conflict and Judean Roman conflict. So essentially some of the kind of atmosphere. And uh, I actually have shown the uh, what have the Romans ever done for us scene uh, to my class on a number of occasions uh, to my Jewish history class. I'm, I'm happy to hear that. <laughs> How many Romans? For our next section, the Fabula Nostra or Our Story, we can each come up with an alternative movie inspired by this one. Dad, do you want to go first? I'm happy to go first. Okay, what I've thinking of uh, it's a sequel the idea would be brian will be rescued from the crucifixion which based on the movie looks like it's something relatively easy to do actually right <laughs> um he'll escape to rome and through a variety of pythonesque pythonesque adventures will actually end up as the roman emperor because it will turn out that naughtius maximus the uh, the roman centurion who's actually his father as we're told by Brian's mother, was actually Vespasian, who actually mm. became the Roman emperor, power struggle following Nero's death. And in fact, was actually in Judea at the time of the, the Jewish revolt. So I think the timing is actually a little off because I think Vespasian would be a little young to be Brian's father, but it's probably right. that far off. It's I think you're off by like 20, 30 years, maybe? Maybe, maybe something like that. Yeah. But. But in any event, I thought that would be an interesting next sequel to life, uh, the further life of Brian. Yeah, especially also because interestingly, one of the reasons that the revolt probably lasted as long as it did was because the Romans were a mess because of that very power struggle. Right. So, interesting. I was thinking that I'd like to have a kind of dark comedy about uh, the Great Revolt itself and uh, kind of continue with the next generation of Judean rebels and the People's Front of Judea and the Judean People's Front, et cetera, and have something that's essentially kind of like loosely based on Josephus's Jewish war, but a kind of dark comedy about how their constant infighting leads them to uh, basically even what the way Josephus presents it, because he's trying to basically make Titus not seem like he did anything wrong, is he basically mm -hmm. implies that the Jews like set the temple on fire themselves and then Josephus tried to put it out. <laughs> <laughs> I suspect that's unlikely, but uh... yeah. So while that, that's very unlikely to be what actually happened, I think it would be kind of fun for like an absurdist comedy. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. How many Romans? 
This then brings us to the parts where we have uh, our enumeratio or rating of the film based on whatever criteria you choose. Well, this one is an easy is an easy one for me, as you probably know from 30 years of experience. It's a definite five for me. I think the history is good. The comedy is great. The skewering of uh, people that need to be skewered in terms of their hypocrisy and uh, practices is, um, you know, you you really can't get in any other movie, I think. So definite five for me. I'm going to, I think, based on minor historical errors, knock it down to, uh, I'll I'll say a 4.5. 4.5. Okay. So still still pretty good, but uh, I can live with errors. I can live with a 4.5. I won't disinherit you for a 4.5. Fair. How many rounds? Dad, are there places where the listeners could find you on the internet? (laughs) (laughs) Not not really. Probably not in this context. Don't look them up. Don't Google them. (laughs) If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can find us on the internet. Please subscribe in your preferred podcatcher app and rate and review on Apple Podcasts. And I will read new five-star reviews in future episodes. Please also follow the podcast on Twitter at Media Evil Pod. And you can join our Facebook group. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at Sarah Ifdecker. And if you have any questions or suggestions, I'd also love to hear from you via email at media.evilpod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to Media Evil. Bye. Bye. Always look on the bright side of life. Always look on the light side of life. If life seems jolly rotten, there's something you've forgotten. And that's to laugh and smile and dance and sing. When you're feeling in the dumps, don't be silly chumps. Just purse your lips and whistle, that's the thing. And always look on the bright side of life. Come on. Always look on the right side of life. For life is quite absurd And death's the final word You must always face the curtain With a bow Forget about your scene Give the audience a grin Enjoy it, it's your last chance So always look on The bright side of death Just before you Draw your terminal breath Life's a piece of shit when you look at it. Life's a laugh and death's a joke, it's true. You'll see it's all a show. Keep on laughing as you go. Just remember that the last laugh is on you. And always look on the
this record's available in the foreheads. Some is about to live as well, man. Who do you think pays for all this rubbish? I told him. I said to him, Bernie, I said, they'll never make that money, mate.